Hello and welcome to Legal Tech Arcade with me, Rob McAdam, an independent podcast about tech-driven legal service delivery and the people and products that make it all happen. Okay, so welcome to the next episode of the Legal Tech Arcade podcast. Uh, This week, I'm very excited, in fact, to be joined by Hayley Altman, who is Global Director of Business Development Strategy at Latera. Um, This is a conversation I've been really, really excited to to be having. So uh, Hayley, welcome to Legal Tech Arcade. Uh, Thank you, Rob. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, I don't know whether you've listened to uh, the other um, uh, other episodes of the podcast, but one thing I've kind of got into the routine of doing is asking a bit of an icebreaker for the guests just to help them settle in. And uh, what we've done is taken the arcade theme. And so I've been asking people, kind of, do they like video games? What their favorite <laughs> video games were? So I'm going to, let's start off with that. Like, are you a Great. video game person? I like them. I I feel like I don't have enough time to play them. Like we have um, more things at the house now that we've got um, the girls, although I really think the video games are actually for my husband. But (laughs) um, I think he's like, oh, but they need this Nintendo Switch, right? And I'm like, "Uh they're six and eight now and like was like four when you bought it. So sure, (laughs) sure. They need it. (laughs) Yeah, no, you definitely need it. You definitely need it. I'm I'm, I'm exactly the same. If there's any any excuse, I'm kind of like the girl, my girls are. Um, the eldest is six, but I'm, you know, I'm like, we need this. Yeah. We need this kind of console and this kind of, they can't play it, but I'm going to play it. For but them. they will, they will. And I, I should learn it first so that I can yeah, exactly. teach, them, teach them, them how to use it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it. That's really all it is. You yeah. just need to know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Love it. Um, I thought we could kick off, uh, Hayley, actually, we're just, um, perhaps, uh, you just telling us a bit about yourself, your background, kind of how you, uh made your way to the role you're in now because I think you've got quite an interesting story actually yeah yeah no it was um uh you know I I was a lawyer so I I was practicing law I got to law in a kind of a slightly roundabout way that I think influenced kind of the direction I went I was on a pathway to go to medical school science background um did cancer research all these different things and then it it really kind of um resonated with me that you know when you do some of these like kind of big research projects there's so much opportunity for things to not go right and to Mm. try to have to keep figuring out what to do Mm. so i in college i realized i had this passion for kind of political science and things like that so i did an internship with the hospital association a lobbying group that lobbied on behalf of like health and hospitals in indiana And I realized it's like, you know, there are different ways that you can influence industries that are important to you. You can work in them. But if I was a lobbyist, then I could I could influence policy that would make it easier for companies to um, deliver on, you know, kind of life saving technology. So I ended up deciding to take a year off between college and and law school to make sure I, I knew my direction. And I worked for Eli Lilly, which is a large pharmaceutical company doing lobbying on their behalf. And it was a really educational experience in terms of how do you influence things. And so then I went into law and um, when I went to practice, the head of the public affairs group at the firm I started at was like, you know, you need a like a, a more technical legal skill and then you can come be in the public affairs if that's where you want, where your passion lies. So I got into corporate and um, I, I did a lot of work for life science companies, figuring out how to help them, you know, kind of form, raise capital, how to take 
technology out of universities so that it could become, you know, so then, yeah. then I got the chance of not just influencing tech law, but I got the influencing um, the companies. How do they get capital? And that's actually what um, sent me out to Silicon Valley um, and Wilson Sonsini. I was, I was really focused on helping them bridge the gap from their more technical groups into their corporate venture capital. And so I um, was able to have that really interesting experience of like, how are you going to like, you know, that Silicon Valley is just this amazing place where just so much capital can yeah. be raised. So many companies are, you know, interacting there. And so I got to see that kind of the interesting um, intersection between, you know, just the tech companies that are developing software and then these biotech companies that are advancing all these really cool life-saving technologies. Mm. And so I did all of that and came back to the Midwest um, for family. And, you know, it really was that point of how do you grow a business now? If you want to make partner and I haven't lived in Indiana in a couple of years, I didn't grow up there. And so I had to come up with how do I create technology in the law firm that can actually help me get clients. And so I started kind of innovating my practice and thinking, okay, I don't know anyone here. How am I going to get them to come to the firm? Well, I mm. created a startup package. Here, you're a startup. You have limited resources, but you need a very specific set of things that I can make a list for. So we created a package for a fixed price. Yeah. So then we had the startups. And so then we, then we had to, but then, you know, the startups have to pay you. So then I created an investor directory to catalog what the, like the investors that could invest in them. And so it grew this big practice for me. And then it was like, then you have that, like, kind of like the, you know, kind of the amazing problem of now you have too much work and you're trying to manage it across a large set of people. So I um, started, uh, I, then that, that's when the idea for um, a new technology came up. I wanted mm. to, to have visibility into the work that I was doing. Yeah. What was the like full scope of deals I was working on? Who was helping me with them? Where were we in this process? And what do we need to do to close things? And so, you know, you know, it's that age old, like you're in the middle of the night and you're oh, missing yeah. a signature page yeah. and you're frantic and... You know, every deal attorney's experienced some form of of panic around yeah. a closing. Yeah, no, it's so, crazy. Yeah, so then it just like at that point, at that point, I was a senior associate, and so, but being a true attorney, I <laughs> um, had to <laughs> mitigate risk. So I did research and and planned for about a about a year of like, what what was there something out there that someone was doing to mm. solve this problem that I could just buy. Was there something close that I could get them to modify? But I, I couldn't figure it, find anything. So I, I decided to build it. So right after, so I had my second child, made partner, and then told the firm that I was working on a project. How did that go down? How did that go down? <laughs> Honestly, a lot um, better than I, I was. I was worried. You know, I didn't tell them until after mm. I made partner because I, I didn't want anything. To, I already knew I was having a baby in the year that I was hoping to make partner. So I was like, I've already got one big life change. And this is my second child. And so I was like, oh, let's wait just a minute. So then I made partner and I told them and they were like, no, this is, they honestly were like, this is extremely needed. Um, we get it. So, and I was like, I promise I'll, I won't like, it won't interfere with like my work. And they're like, yeah, Haley, we got it. Like, uh, I, I like worked up until like the day I had babies and stuff like that. There was like, there's no concern about like work ethic. And so, but what they did was because I told them and it was a risk and it was one of those things where, you know, a lot of times I get asked now, 
like, do you share your ideas? Like, you have to build in secret. Like, someone will steal your idea. You've got to, like, you can't, you got to, like, keep it close. And honestly, it was one of the best decisions I made because in telling them, I got one, their, like, feedback and blessing. And and then when I did leave, there was no question as to what IP was mine versus yeah, whether the firm yeah. had any I, any um, rights to it. And I was, I was very careful. I did everything. I bought a second computer. I did everything. Mm you know, down to the, like, you know, as like the lawyer side of it, but they actually introduced me to Hialtha, which was a venture studio we were forming at the time. And it was one of our clients and they were basically, their premise was there's, they were four founders that all founded different companies, all with, you know, success, um, successful exits or, or continuing businesses. And the largest being Scott Dorsey created exact target, um, which was a marketing, one of the first marketing cloud type companies. And he sold it to Salesforce for 2.5 billion. So wow. all of it came from start to finish. He did it in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And so it was a huge success. And, and so they were really looking at how do they take the next great ideas and make them into a company. And so it's a, it's a shift on an, on an, inc- it's not an incubator or accelerator. It's usually their ideas that they bring and then they build a company around. And we were really the first idea. So they, they decided that when they formed, they were two venture studios and an operating company. There's two, two venture funds and an operating company, which is a lot of paperwork in the yeah. legal world. And so they realized that there was some pain points around all the, the work they had done. And so they came to Ice Miller and said, hey, we want to do something in legal. And their idea was a little bit narrow around their current biggest need, which was subscription agreements amongst the, the LPs. Yeah. And, and so our managing partner, because he knew, because I went to him and told him what I was doing, was like, you need to talk to Haley. And so that was one of the key introductions, like probably in our entire trajectory, mm. um, you know, because it's I was a partner in the primary breadwinner in our family leaving to start a company was like the biggest like big kind risk. Of, yeah, the biggest risk. And, to you know, we couldn't go to no salary and we, you know, and, and so I was going to have to do it in a in a much more. And a less linear way. Yeah. So that introduction, honestly, is actually what I, they, I think, their reason for making in the intro was like, great, High Alpha will take the idea. They'll build a company around it. Haley will be on the board. She'll stay here and be a partner yeah. here. And bring some I, business <laughs> in, yeah. Yeah, like, she'll get to do it. She'll get to bring this product in and yeah. she'll stay. And then they, like, forgot the one other way that that could work is that they <laughs> do the idea. It's great. And I... I leave to run it, but I just made equity partners. So I, th- this is one year now after I made income partner, I made the transition that we were a two tier partnership and I had made the jump to equity partner, which was the, with one other person, we made the jump in one year, which was the first time it had ever happened yeah. at the firm. And so it was like a big deal. And that was what actually made it the hardest because I loved where I worked and mm-hmm. I loved mm-hmm. the people I worked with. And so then they came to me, we, we, we won Sprint Week against three other companies that High Alpha was considering. And they had asked originally if I would be CEO. And I said, no, before Sprint oh, right. Week. Okay. 
Yeah, I said no. I mean, they literally, it's interesting. The day they asked me if I would join their sprint week and, and try to make this a reality, mm. we were trying to iron out some of the of the things. And as they were telling me this, I had legitimately been told I was going to be an equity partner the day before. And I was like, oh, the timing. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just achieved my dream right now. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't, like, I hadn't even settled into the idea that this was going to happen. And then in February, end of February, I'd, I'd do the sprint week. I was like, yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I'm really happy. Like, but I'll be on your board. And then after that, that week was amazing. The idea of diving in and digging into what is, how do you create a company? Like was amazing as a startup attorney. Like you think, you know, and then this was just this like magical, crazy experience. And, and at this point, is it still, so is it Doxley at this point? Was it called Doxley at this point or did it have, no. was it something different? It was so when I was creating it and um, I was calling it the closing room because I was thinking about those. We would take conference rooms and you would take um, metal accordions and each like part of the metal accordion, you would place a file folder. That file folder would represent some item on the checklist. Mm. And that was with that needed to be signed. And we would take all the documents and put the signature pages with those like little sign here flags sticking straight up. And people would walk around the table. All the parties to the transaction would come to the law office. And they would walk around the table, find the pages that were there, sign them. And then someone would help them replace them back into the document. So yeah. basically once... The only way, the way you knew a deal was finished when every page was turned in, so when there was no pages sticking up, no sign here, tabs visible, and that's how you would close it. And then the, someone would initiate a wire and the deal would close. Yeah. And so I wanted to take that very, you know, literal, like, you know, in-person process and crew make it, uh, you know, kind of make it into a collaboration space on, you know, online. Mm -hmm. And when I was in the sprint week, like it was funny, Christian, um, one of the four partners, Christian Anderson, he had ran a company called Studio Science, which was heavy into design, brand building. And he like at the end of day one, diving into everything was like, yeah, so Haley, uh, that name has got, got to go. go. <laughs> this is terrible. And he was like, I get it. And I go, I mean, I had like, you know, it's one of those things where I had like my sister who's an engineer had helped me design a little logo. It was like a closing door. And I was like, oh my God, you guys, it's perfection. Like we are here in the, the land of perfection. And, and he goes, no, he's like, the things that we've talked about today are all past just the closing of a transaction. Yeah, and he's like, your true. name, your name, you don't want to be limited by your name. Yeah. And if you choose some of the names that are a little bit more focused on exactly what you do, then one, it does help your, your, you know, your potential buyers know what you do. But it then can become a limiting factor if they look and see that name and they're like, oh, I need something more than that. Mm. It, it moves them. They, they don't, they can get stuck. And so he said, you have a lot of ideas of how this can grow past even transaction management. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, don't, let's not limit. We didn't actually have the name transaction management. That was a name that had to come get figured mm. out as well. But he was like, Let's um, let's think bigger. And so we had this entire exercise about like, what were we trying to do? And, you know, we talked about deals, transactions. We talked about negotiation, agreements. 
And we got down to it, and then at the end of the time, each one of those names seemed limiting, mm-hmm. even even though they were broader. So we got down to the document and like what what runs transactions or any type of of these complicated workflows. It's it's multi, it's lots of documents that need to be organized and come together in a certain way. So we took that idea of the document, and we um, really then started looking for names that could go with that. Yeah. And Doxley was the name that we kind of settled on. That was like it was close enough to the word document, but ambiguous enough that it wasn't like it gave us some flexibility. And and so my only request so they had, there's an I actually found I went back and I was looking at things. I found the original closing room deck <laughs> that I presented that had. Like, it was like, basically like, now I look at the decks that we get to prepare based on like having <laughs> designers. And I was like, oh, <laughs> bless my heart. Like, that was like, that was like adorable. Like, it was I like love, cute. I love, it. I, love, <laughs> yeah. I love stuff like that though. You know, when you're early stages, you're doing everything yourself. Um, yeah. It's just something to be really proud of. I, yeah. You bring in people eventually that can do this a lot better, but the fact that you yeah. did it yourself is something to really look back on and think, yeah, that, that was awesome. We did it. Well, and it's interesting when you look back and you see that like the value points that we were really thinking about are still really some of the value points that we're focused on in terms of like streamlining process efficiency, like the pain points. We we've stayed true to understanding that, and then but I, I found the original Doxley logo, which was also different. And now that changed over a period of days. And I looked at it and I was like, I I no. And we were like, no, they're like, no, Haley, we'll we'll refine it. And I was like, no, I want. I just want the D to look like a piece of paper. That's yeah. the thing that will yeah. orient it. And so then we did the D with the fold and, and that's, then that became the company. And then once it, like, once I saw that, I was like, that's it. That's like, we're good. We're all good here. This is great. And so that was, mm. so that became Doxley and we one sprint week and, um, and you know, the idea to go forward and um, I just, I couldn't pass it up at that point. I was just, every day I thought about it. I was so passionate about it. And, I, I just on one a drive home and my drive from like the downtown Indy to my house at the time was like six minutes. And I got in the car after I would work a full day at at Ice Miller and then I would head over to work with the high alpha team on some of the Doxley stuff. And All we right. were thinking okay. about yeah, we were thinking about what to do and I just like one of the days I just like I was driving home and it was like five minutes and I I and something about that drive, it just all clicked. And I walked in the door and I was like, Daniel, I'm going to resign tomorrow. And he was like, you're going to what? <laughs> what? <Yeah. laughs> so I, uh, I, I resigned the next day and, and to their credit, like, I mean, you know, that's one of the reasons it was so hard and why I initially said, no, I didn't, I actually, I truly loved being a lawyer. Like I, I enjoyed everything that I did, you know, outside of the administrative mm. kind of hassles that we had to deal with. Like I loved like negotiating deals. I, I loved mm. helping my companies raise capital and helping position them for investors. And I, I liked doing the M&A work. I liked that journey and seeing new things get brought to market. So it was hard to leave. And I actually had such, a, I, the, the Ice Miller team was like, they're still, and they're all still there. Like they're so great. There was so, so many wonderful people to work with that I had learned what they were the first firm I started with even when I left and went to Wilson I came back so it's like mm. they you know when I I, they, I left they let me come back they let me become partner I was 
on the finance committee, I, I had a whole trajectory that I knew I could go down. So I, I was looking at a pathway that was well-defined and uh, uh, that I knew I wanted, I was going to be happy if I went down. Yeah. And then here's this like crazy opportunity that you're just like, there's, there's no clear path. There's just like some forest and you gotta mm-hmm. like, you're going to run at it. And, um, when I told them, um, I had, there, I had one other opportunity before this to leave and go in-house in, in the biotech space. And it was an awesome opportunity and it would have been great. And they convinced me to stay. And, um, and this time when I walked into the managing partner's office, um, he, I told him and he was like, Haley, that's an incredible opportunity. You have to take it. Yeah. And it was one of those, like, we will be here if you decide after a year that like running a company, which is going to be incredibly hard, is not something you want to do. Like take a mm. year, do it. If you want to come back, you can. And so that was the, that was the decision between both High Alpha and Ice Miller that I would, I would take at least one year to get this completely stood up. And then at the end of the year, depending on how we all felt, like I would either go back to being a journey or I would continue yeah. running the company. And so it was just one of those. And it's like, you know, everyone asks, like, how do you how do you take that risk? And well, I mean, they made it easier for you, essentially. Because, yeah. yeah, you were put in the position where you could take that risk, which, you know, and being yeah. in a position where you can do something you're passionate about, that you're genuinely thinking, if, if we do this, this is going to change the way attorneys can work. But then you're given that freedom to do that from your firm and you've got the support of the, you know, the investors as well. It's just a great position to be in, a great position to be in. Yeah. And then in honesty, you look at it and you think, like, if I'm going to do something, like, what's the absolute risk and like, what does this do? And, and you know, and, and, and I had that assurance and, you know, and then like I, you know, some friends and family were like, Haley, even though they say it, I mean, aren't you sure that in a year they would let you come back? And I was like, well, I've hoped I've proven mm. myself in that. And I go, but what better, you know, at the end of the day, even if it didn't work, even if they didn't hold true to everything they said, which I, I firmly believe they would have. Yeah. Um, I, I'm still so close with all of them. They're amazing people and they're always been true to their words. So I, I feel like that holds true. But what better life lesson for someone that works with startup and growth companies to be able to say, I've actually walked at least a year in your shoes in terms of understanding what you do. I've experienced the sleepless nights and the pain points around, you know, all of these different mm-hmm. things. I've, I've, I've rode the roller coaster with you. And so, so I looked at it, it's like, that's the, the worst case scenario is I have, I've developed an experience, um, but then once you're in it, like like you're like when you're when you're thinking about it, like making the decision, that seemed like the worst case. You know, it's like okay, well, I've got great experience, and I can mm-hmm. come back. And then yeah. when you're in it, you're like, oh, I have investors invested in me, I have employees, and so like the worst case scenario is that you don't live up to what they need, yeah. and you can't do so. Like it shifts, but when when I was making the decision, that was the like total lawyer calculus mm-hmm. on it. And then and then so. You've, so that's the kind of the inception of, I guess, Doxley. Mm-hmm. And then, so how do things go in terms of getting to where you are now? So uh, obviously you're at Latera. I think the product now recently actually is officially Latera Transact. So you know, kind of briefly, briefly, how did that kind of transpire then over that the course of those, those few years? Yeah, I mean, that was the craziest part is it really was a quick time frame. So we, we went from like start to sale in three years. And that's a that's a pretty quick turnaround in in any sort of um, mm. startup world. So we we raised capital right away, um, you know. And it's like a, one of those things. And I we we raised two point three million in thirty days without a product. 
And, you know, it's one of those things when you get to represent companies and, and put together pitch decks for a, as part of your job, you know, it's like one of the areas that I felt like the most comfortable with in yeah. terms of how do we tell the story of what we want to be and how we're going to how we're going to do this, what the market is. And, you know, and so we raise capital. We're able to hire an amazing group of people. And um, and we just started building and we already had from the day we were during Sprint Week, I had actually gotten a couple of customers signed up to letters of paid paid pilots. And so we actually we actually built really quickly because we knew we had people that were paying to use it. So we started building and we um, we started building, I would say, in June of 2016. And we launched a first version of the product in October. So we moved quickly and, you know, the high alpha motto is dream big, move fast, expect, dream big, expect more, move fast. And we like hit all of those. We're like, all right, let's build the whole thing, the whole vision of what we want to do. Let's start Mm. building and then let's get in people's hands. Let's learn. Let's go. So we started and we, we really focused in on like making sure that we understood like what is this market that we're trying to serve and, you know, is it deal deal technologies and, you know, we're managing these transactions. So we started to go out to the market and just say, let's tell people more about what the pain points are. What are the reasons why you need to use a technology in this space? Like, what are the administrative burdens? What are the pain, heartache and, you know, what are the, what are the risks to attorneys if they don't have a sort of technology that can help these processes? You could, your deals may not close on time and, you can negotiate a flawless deal for someone get all the points and if it doesn't close when they need it to close like there are some major issues that can come up not reputational being one of them but like if your client doesn't get the money when they need they can't pay their employees if they if they can't close on time sometimes deals can fall apart every day that a deal doesn't close is a day that it's at risk so we really kind of honed in on what are the pain points people are experiencing we we kind of build thought leadership and a brand around it and so in a short period of time, we were actually known pretty globally, um, which surprised us. At one point, we got started getting calls from Australia, and we had no <laughs> idea how. And they, someone had featured us in a in a print magazine article, at, that had gone to the lawyers. And so they called us, and we were like, "What?" Mm-hmm. Like, so we someone finally sent us a copy of the article. We didn't even know it existed, but somehow. That's amazing. We had said, yeah, we had done enough thought leadership to talk about this problem that people recognized it. Mm. So we started to build great customers in over three years. Then we actually, all in March of 2019, we had started getting interest from people that was like, some of it was like, like, let's partner. And some of it was straight out, like, we want to acquire you. And so we started to have the conversations. We're like, okay, well, what does this all mean? And so it started to be this like, this massive amount of interest and so once once there's enough interest it kind of makes you take a step back and think okay we're about to raise it we're at actually a perfect inflection point we're about to raise a series a we actually had the cool thing that i i don't think people knew is that we were about to raise a series a and i actually had investors the way some of the investors came to us is they used the platform Ah, they were working with some of our customers had um used it with obviously venture capital transactions and the investors were like, this is actually a better experience for us than just using electronic signature alone Mm -hmm. with, you know, email. So they reached out to us. And so we had some early investors in zoom reach out to us and be like, we will be a part of your next round. Like, so we had this like set of investors that were already coming to us that we were, you know, excited about 
but then you've got when it's when it's one offer you can probably think about it but when it's like multiple that people that are coming in and, and making offers and they're all interesting and they feel um that all feels good you have to take a look so we we did and we had a number of offers and we decided um fi finally we we're like you know what this honestly makes sense like we're at a really good inflection point we can have a without raising at that point we just raised around three million so we're we didn't have a huge amount of capital in if you do an a you're going to bring in a fair amount more capital it changes the dynamics of what an exit can look like mm. and things like that and what the revenue markers mm. have to be and so we said, you know, we're at a good inflection point. Like we can get a good return for our investors. And like, and for me, I was like, you know, we had these amazing investors had, had a different experience of marketing tech, sales tech, all these different um, areas that were outside of legal that gave us different perspectives. But, you know, there's a point where it's like, okay, to really take this to the place we need to go, being able to combine with um, an organization that understood legal was really kind of exciting and it gave us the potential to take the vision to where we wanted to go. Mm. And so we we looked at all the companies and um, I, I would say that, that when I when I when I thought of where we would go, I had ideas of where the exit would be because, you know, you're as an attorney, you think like, OK, there's got to You got to have that exit in mind so that you can start networking with the right people like that you don't need now, but you may need later. So. Latera wasn't exactly the first place I had. I had thought about the like all the tools they had and I thought it was that would be a perfect partner with but then it was like you know you think of some there were some more kind of um like kind of there are other companies and other verticals that I was like oh that would make sense yeah so it came down and we had we had um, companies from totally different verticals. We did have some competitors in the mix, like people that would have been competitive towards each other. Mm -hmm. But the interesting part was it was like it, it showcased everything that I knew to be true about what transaction management can be. It is not one area. It doesn't right. need to connect with one thing. It actually spans a large swath of, of the legal industry. Yeah. And that was representative in terms of who the potential buyers were. So what it came down to for us was what is going to help us move our overall vision um, forward. And and also, like I, I looked at it from three important things. Who, what was going to do right by my investors? Who, How was I going to make sure that my employees like we're taking care of and then the what would be the best for our customers, which would be fulfilling our long term vision. And yeah. so that's where Latera kind of came in and, and really checked those boxes for me. Yeah. I mean that's a that's an amazing story. Um and I think what strikes me about the story is that it's incredibly it's incredibly organic, just and, and almost natural in the way that things have kind of progressed for you. Um, in the way your, your journey through from from what you were doing in the lobbying into law and then trying to solve a problem and moving into the kind of the, the technology space, getting the backing of your law firm, building yeah. the product, but then even things like just the organic nature of, of the awareness of, of the product yeah. globally. You know, I remember it seems to come out of nowhere when I was when I was uh, practicing as a, as a corporate M&A attorney, you know, suddenly it was Doxley's on the scene and it, and it looked fantastic. And it's so uh, it's hard to explain, I guess, to anyone who hasn't done corporate M&A, but it's so obvious as a problem that needs to be solved that the minute you see you know, transaction management or closing management, you're like, that is exactly what I need. <laughs> like, so, I don't want to be here at three o'clock in the morning. I want to be at home. I want to be in bed. Uh, I, right. Yeah. So I can't, I'm not surprised that this got picked up and it almost just went viral around the world because it's just such an obvious 
obvious problem that needs to be solved. It's crazy. Yeah, and I think that's why, you know, and it's like you look at um, the space and it's like attorneys have experienced this problem and the, the pain is is mm. there. And, and yes, you can. We have survived by doing it different ways. And I would say survived. Like, like there are times I, we have had, I've seen associates that have not like, and that's like as firms as a whole have survived managing these processes. I've, I've seen people get let go after a deal because of one deal. Mm-hmm. Um, messing up a funds flow. We had one associate that um, transpired, like switched the numbers as to who would get what. Um, oh. And we, we like, I mean, when fortunately it was caught at the last possible second, but it would have been massive huge, in terms yeah. of overall impact. But they were working on so many things. Everything's coming together at the last minute. They were working at the direction of someone else and getting like different points of feedback. Mm-hmm. I've, I've seen it where, um, you know, like, signature pages are missed and deals are closed. Um, you know, you've heard the cases where non-competes couldn't be found because they were signed and no one like could find them mm. after the deal mm. was done. Well, those are like, these are, these are massive issues. These are lawsuits. Um, you know, these are big things. And, and so while we, you know, while we all live to fight another day, generally, like sometimes people on the team don't like these mistakes can be, you know, these can cause cost you your career or your ability to work on large deals. Like you get, you get funneled from like major M&A work to like a more niche part of the firm where you're, you're not working on those types Mm. of deals. Like, I mean, people's careers are impacted. So it's like to say that we can still do it a different way. Yeah. Yeah. It's possible. But like when things go wrong, they are, they can have really, really strong negative impacts. impacts, Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm interested. So, um, that, so that's a fascinating explanation of how you kind of arrived at the terror, how the, how Doxley arrived at the terror and into the terror transact. But just kind of taking a step back, seems to me, so my experience, you know, um, working in, you know, in this space and, um, you know, in M&A was that for quite some years, the kind of the tech element of M&A seemed, and by that, I mean, the tools, the technology tools mm-hmm. seemed quite bland and it was quite yes. simple. You know, we data room, electronic data rooms, yeah. um, you know, I was around when they were still called electronic data rooms, which <laughs> which I guess showed you that there were still physical data rooms being being used. But right. you know, for a long time, it was just those electronic data rooms. It's like the Merrells and the Intralinks, um, and it didn't seem to really evolve from there. But then I guess we kind of started seeing the AI providers, do, the likes of Kira doing the kind of contract analysis and DD, and then and then the likes of you guys and, and Doxley emerging, and then obviously other other tools that do similar things and. It did kind of develop a little bit, but how would you def- define the kind of current state of transaction management at the moment? Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a really interesting space, and I think you've got um, you know you've got different companies that have focused on different pain points in the process. Mm. Um, so you've got um, you know some companies that focused you know kind of pu- more purely on the closing aspect and, yeah. and like that specific pain um, of of actually trying to collect cr- uh, these different signature pages. And so you've got some some. Um, transaction management that you'd probably call a little bit closer to like closing management kind of as you mentioned you yeah. know where it's really kind of the real main goal is to manage the closing mm. 
they're not built to like handle the um, the permissioning and things like that around like consistent negotiation of agreements um, and they or to do any of the front end diligence um, that would that would come around a deal. Mm-hmm. And so you've got kind of the closing management set. Then I would say you've got another set that's a little bit more focused on actually the checklist as a whole without the closing management. And that's because those attorneys, um, so closing management, usually if is like I will say the deal tech area, most of the founders are lawyers because it's such a specific problem that like you have to understand like actually what's going on Mm -hmm. in the process. And so it really takes it's usually an attorney that's that's um, like kind of felt that pain and it's just like, I have to fix this. So that's where I think you, so all the closing management companies have founders that are lawyers. And um, and so they're, you know, very specific pain point. They were probably M&A, private equity focused attorneys because for them, there's tons of signers. They've got to manage them. That's that part of the process. The next set of group is probably more on the, on the, I, you probably call that a little bit more traditional transaction management because they're managing aspects of the of documents going back and forth. They're focused on the checklist, primarily driven by attorneys that were banking and finance attorneys. So again, a similar space where it was driven by attorneys yeah. and um, they were solving their banking and finance problems. They have all these conditions precedent. Um, for that, which is interesting to me as I, I did some banking work, but, um, and I did some large scale casino financing. So it was like, I mean, you know, we're talking 500, $700 million financing round. So randomly I didn't do small financing work. I just did real big. So I figured I just just go big or go home over here. So like I was doing big financings, but I didn't get in as much into the conditions precedent. Like they, so we didn't do it in a similar way. We had a data room for those types of deals because we had, I mean, we, those were massive organizations. Well, they're managing, instead of using a data room to manage a lot of these conditions precedent, there's a, a, a schedule that's a checklist almost of here's all the conditions that need to be met. And then someone goes in and looks at the documents that would go with those conditions and says, okay, yep, everything's there. Check. Mm-hmm. We can yeah. check this off our list and move on. Um, and so they were trying to manage these checklists that were going back and forth and they were, their primary pain points were checklist driven and documents associated with the checklist. Not, not necessarily always even the negotiation of the documents, but like actually delivering the proof that all these conditions were met. And so their form is checklist driven. And then you've got a couple of outliers that said, okay, like, I get both the ideas of the checklist and what are all the documents and the and the closing as a whole. And so then there's like a small a, a smaller set of companies that said, okay, let's try to tackle the whole thing. And so let's try to let's try to do the like kind of think a little bit bigger and um, and think more holistically. And so I think you've seen some of the more like kind of point solutions. And then there was the idea, okay, like, let's try to tackle more of this and, and see it as a more holistic. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think you, the, the two companies that have, um, that were more um, kind of holistic are actually um, run by partners at law firms, which may be the point that's the differentiation is right. that for, for associates that started companies, they were thinking about the very specific pain specific, point that yeah. they were fain, that they were facing. And then the step back companies were like partners that were thinking, oh my gosh, we're, we've made, we've, we've grown up through the associate ranks and had to deal with the problems that the associates face. Now we actually look at it from the partner perspective and we have the ability to take a step back and say, okay, 
let's look at this as a whole. And mm-hmm. so I think, and the, the, I think the entire industry of transaction management is continuing to evolve, to look more holistically and like how does, and, and it, I think it's evolving in different ways. There's still a, you know, some, I think there is still a, a ability to focus in on that specific pain point because those specific pain points are um, prominent. But now I think there's a step back to say, how do we take a look at interoperability and, and how do we look at the transaction as a whole? Yeah. And so I yeah. think you, you know, and, and you've, I, I have seen some tech that actually is transaction type specific where, you know, someone tried to tackle subscription agreements. If you're doing like these like smaller um, private placements and someone that was trying to trans um, tackle fund formations and, mm-hmm. you know, and so you'll see that. And like, I think at the, at now what I think you're starting to see a little bit more is people that are stepping back and saying, okay, I, if, if a firm has to buy a banking finance tool and an M&A tool, that's going to be problematic. Yeah. So now let's take a step back and think about who we're trying to serve and what are we trying to help them accomplish. Exactly. Especially when, you know, uh, any deal isn't just isolated to, you know, an, an M&A, M&A deal isn't just delivered by the M&A team. It's delivered by right. specialists right across the business. And, you know, an M&A deal involves finance. So you're going to get yes. banking lawyers working alongside corporate lawyers. And if you've got five different systems that people are doing their discrete elements of the deal in, um, it makes no sense. But, right. you know, I think it was it was right that I think the key focus landed on that kind of closing checklist, closing management piece. That was that really is one of the most obvious pain points from there and then radiate out. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing, which is trying to tackle more of that life cycle of the deal now, which right. is great. And I, I guess that's possibly why we're also seeing more consolidation in the market at the moment as yes. well. So I'm thinking, you know, obviously you had iManager's acquisition of the closing folders, uh, Ansarada of the dockyard. So it does seem like that is something people have recognized and are either developing the functionality themselves and broadening out or actually following this kind of acquisition play and bringing some of these tools together to form broader transaction management platforms. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that the new the recent acquisitions show us is that this is a legitimate area um, of a real pain point that people are trying to take a look at. You know, when we got acquired by Latera, they also acquired Workshare Transact, and so, and I, I think that you know it was that Workshare Transact was a you know UK based you know mm. kind of banking finance focused you know really amazing product around these you know kind of checklists, and so what Latera looked at it was like okay, you've got a uh, you know, built with a slight U.S. M&A private equity venture capital bias, Doxley, and here you've got, you know, a very international um, banking and finance, understanding conditions precedent, really kind of like simple, easy to understand product in, in Workshare Transact. If we can combine those together, we can think holistically and globally. Um, and we can think beyond transaction types and provide those. And that's where the Latera Transact name came. And, you know, it's like, it is one of those like kind of trade-off conversations. Mm-hmm. We said, well, I was there like, Haley, we'll let you make the decision if you need, if you're comfortable giving up the name Doxley. Cause at the time I was general manager of transaction management. And I said, yes, because a lot of the Ter- Latera products are all moving to verbs. And so it, it seemed strange to try to stay outside of it. Um, I did have one hesitation though, that the area and the scope of everything we could do and the vision we were moving to was, you know, broader than just transaction management. So we agreed on transact with the idea and we knew at the time, and it was, and it was hard to explain to the team, like the, the URL will be latera.work. 
And people were like, why work? Why not transact? And I was like, because this is a broader category. So the agreement was we'll go with Latera Transact as long as the category will be around work because yeah. we'll expand from there. But I think that's what it, it ties into kind of what you're saying. It's like, you know, people are saying this is a legitimate area of, 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 of pain and need. And so there you're in, in an ability to look at one interoperability, which is, I think what you see with the iManage closing folders, like mm-hmm. how do we move documents and, and, and with the dockyard and Ansarada more around, like how do we, how do we expand like kind of the, the life cycle of the deal and what we're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. But all of it anchored around, this is a very real area in solidifying the fact that there's a market need for these types of technologies. So that's like, I think the ex- really exciting part of these kind of combinations is like kind of solidifying this as a, as a, as a real area. And, um, and then highlighting the fact that not only do we need to be thinking about global transaction types, but also the interoperability mm. that kind of comes with it. Mm. And I guess, um, It'd be interesting to know, actually, what kind of impact COVID has had on this as well. But it, you've got a lot of people, well, pretty much everyone working remotely, but still trying to do deals. There's a, you know, there's a lot of government support in terms of financing. So, you know, lending is still happening. There's still the opportunity for M&A deals. That's still got to happen with a remote workforce. So have you seen a, a kind of a, a bit of an uptick in actual interest in the platform or even just use of the platform because of something like COVID? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we saw was we were immediately getting hearing even from our private equity backer and HG that like during quarantine and lockdowns, they were still getting signature pages couriered to their houses and they were having to make the decision. Do they like break a quarantine to grab the signature pages, sign them and hand them back because they yeah. needed to be witnessed? And, you know, it's, it's a big, it's a big deal. And so we decided to make a, we made a decision that we would, you know, because we were very tightly integrated with electronic signature, we could, we could help people with some of that process. So we actually offered the technology for free for six months for anyone that wanted to, um, you know, try to change, like to have an opportunity to try to change how they could get these deals closed, um, knowing that there was some constraints that they were handling. And Mm so we ended up seeing we had a hundred over a hundred firms sign up in a one month period. So the need and the that firms were experiencing was was they there was a profound pain that was like we have to make we have to we need something. But then you also saw there's like an ebb and flow of like deal activity when you go into a crisis like restructuring becomes a more prominent deal type. So, so we saw, and we, we, you know, the system tracks different, the different deal types people are using. And so Mm. we saw like, you know, some ebbs and flows in different areas, like in the beginning, M&A slows down, venture financing goes up because you got to keep companies alive until they can get funded. You saw restructuring start to appear. Um, real estate deals went down a little bit. And yeah. So you started to see like, in a which is, which was what I would have, um, I was an attorney in Silicon Valley in 2008 and you have similar things. We yeah. didn't, the, our IPO market mm. went quiet. Our M&A market went quiet and we saw a lot of VC creative VC funding. This one actually didn't have that dramatic, like, freeze and almost exit opportunities there was definitely to your point things were still happening but people just needed a way to do it and so we had more firms asking us to train different groups like if we were starting in the banking and finance we were getting now more interest from other areas we need to do this and so you know we were able to you know start helping more people so it was a lot of training yeah. and like you know figuring out how to like launch and move groups forward yeah yeah 
Um, so this is the this is the bit in the in the discussion that I've been really interested in getting into now. So um, I really want to talk about the future state of transaction management, and and this may very well become our manifesto for for, for what needs to happen. So it, this is going to be interesting. But um, I'm just yeah, what I want to dig into is let's compare some notes on where transaction management can go as a as an area, what the platforms are going to develop into, what what the holes are and the gaps are within this. Uh, because I think there are a few, I think it's a really exciting area when you look at the possibilities of, of what we might see over the next few years in transaction management. So in terms of that future state, uh, you know, why didn't, why didn't I kick things off then? Sure. And um, I think things need to be a little bit more dynamic, I would say, in, in the transaction management space and the creation of these checklists. So you know, at the moment, what you're doing is you're kind of taking, you've got your checklist and you're digitizing that and you've got it within a platform, but things change throughout a deal. Um, you know, a lot of the facts are known up front. So is there a way of kind of dynamically creating your checklist and adapting the mm-hmm. checklist? You know, it feels to me that that's, a, that's an area that could be um, you know, developed um, pretty soon, actually, to make, make those automated dynamic checklists a reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I do. I think like that's, you know, that's one of the key parts. Like, how do you start and what are the like, do this, the set of facts that you have dictate like what a checklist would look like? And yeah. I think that's one of the things that I've always kind of thought about. And, and it's, it, but it also goes to, you know, firms have these amazing knowledge management groups that have a lot of checklists that the firms have worked hard on saying, if this is the type of deal we're doing, we are a buy side um, and it's a stock deal, these are the places we want to start. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like, how do you take those? And so for us, like, for me, that, that meant like templating and you get a lot of, we get, it's an interesting, like, oh, but you know, but then there's a specific set of facts and it's like, okay, well, a template can account for some of those sets of facts. But I think to your point, what would really probably get people over the hump and get them to use like kind of the templates is if they could, if they could put in a set of facts and it would pick the template that best matches that. Exactly. Yeah. Really driven by templates. Like there are like, uh, you know, I used to have like a, this is my, I am seller. We're doing a stock deal. This is primarily what I want to start with. Or this is the PE fund I work with all the time. They're doing a leveraged finance deal. And so these are the checklists that I need in order mm. to, to get that moving. Mm. And so um, I think that, I think that's a, that's a really important point because it's like, you know, right now attorneys will sometimes, and I, I would, when I was a partner, I was always surprised by the checklist that the attorney would choose as their base starting point sometimes when they would send it to me. And I would be like, we have done like 50 deals for this PE fund and I can tell you picked a different funds checklist. (laughs) Why? Like why? Or they would, you know, but that's like what sometimes I think it's a learning experience for the associates too. It also comes down to training. Like how do you help people identify who have not worked in these? They're the ones that are picking the checklist to start from sometimes. Sometimes the partner will direct them and they'll give vague instructions, Mm. but it comes down to like what actually should be in this type of a deal. And a lot of times People don't know the starting point. So there's a lot of education that these these transaction management platforms can actually do for these younger attorneys. Yeah. If they were like, I put in these key, key items that the partner told me, now a checklist comes up that is more the most relevant to that set of information. Yeah, exactly. And now I could start. So I think I think that is, uh, I do see that is like the starting point um, of a deal is, 
is going to be really interesting and and what you can do to create it um, what you can do to like um, use more kind of potentially machine learning around like what are those components um, if you had a term sheet could the term sheet turn into a checklist exactly. like based on the terms in there so i do see that like i think you're hitting on some of the things that i think are interesting is like that we how do you start and then what happens once you start is mm. like is i think the interesting kind of layers it is it is like yeah you mentioned the kind of term sheet heads terms a lot of a lot of that data is gathered up front anyway mm-hmm. um but then it's kind of repopulated into every single document um now i know that kind of the idea of having some base facts that sit behind the checklist um that's kind of a concept that's been taken in the kind of document automation space where mm-hmm. you would obviously populate the, the the facts, the data, and it generate the documents. But that spits out documents that then go, well, actually, it spits out documents, Word documents, that then get mm-hmm. negotiated, changed. It's not systematized. And I think right. that's why the opportunity exists to build your checklist in a platform um, using those facts. Maybe generate documents, but then actually make that a two-way process, that it's not just the facts de- determining the structure of the checklist and the documentation, but if the documents then potentially get negotiated, things change, maybe say the consideration structure changes of the deal, mm-hmm. the system is intelligent enough to, to recognize that and say, actually, it looks like your facts have changed. It looks like the structure yeah. of the deal has changed through negotiation and, and kind of reverse in those changes into the checklist, into the documents as well. Yeah, well, so I honestly, I think this is fascinating, but I think what you're saying is like actually hits in on exactly why we made the choice to go with Latera. Like, what was that reason that made us go this direction? And it's because of the of how closely tied drafting and the importance mm. of how you draft documents are to the transactions that you're trying to manage. That information and how that information comes together, how that information gets created, automated, is like what's really, I think, interesting. And so you look at like, Okay, you've got all these drafting tools. I, I looked at it as what are the things that like one, you've got a set of facts and now I've got to create documents. So the doc automation tools, the creation tools are important or hey, even just I've negotiated an employment agreement. Now I need to turn that employment agreement into a form because every employee is going to have a different name, a different title, a different salary. So what are the key pieces of information that are going to change, but which what is going to stay constant across all of them? So, mm-hmm. you know, those are, you know, the, to me, that's where like my mind went or documents aren't drafted in isolation. My section reference in my purchase agreement references like five other documents. Well, I got to make sure that not only are my section references accurate within a document, that they're accurate across. But what you just mentioned actually ties into one of the reasons we bought best practice. So here we are seeing this technology that's taking a look at how do you draft clauses? Like I, I need a new force majeure clause, but I need one that's relevant. Like I can use machine learning and find another clause like, oh, yep, this clause is a great clause because here's five other clauses that almost have identical words, except those the, the document I'm drafting is a master services agreement for a tech licensing product. And the five that are the closest matches are in construction agreements. Well, those are not the same. And the, that relevancy of that clause now changes. So now if I take and I search for relevant clauses that are tied to it, then it's like, oh, <laughs> this clause is not a good clause. It's, it's actually, you then figure out that the associate pulled it from a construction agreement and threw it into a tech <laughs> yeah, agreement. Yeah. And you're like, oh, well, now we got to change it. So that's, so that's like relevancy, but what best practice also does is it says, hey, you have a, a license agreement. Here are the 10 components that are normally in a license agreement. Your agreement only has six. 
what's missing. And I think that goes to your dynamic point yeah. of deals as they change. What is the traditional hallmarks of this type of a deal? The agreements that come in if the consideration is cash, the considerations that come in if they if the consideration is stock. Yeah. And like if you change from a cash to a stock deal, the 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 different now your your kind of checklist of yep I hit on all these ten points in my deal I have the documents that kind of go with this now that this document changed I'm I need to change the like checklist mm -hmm. that uh, the the spotlight that I'm looking at as to what should be in there and so that like the the overall interplay between drafting and negotiation of agreements is is why Latera made the most sense in order to go forward yeah. and have that kind of broader vision. But then what what we've done as now Latera with Workshare Transact and Doxley is say, okay, but what do we need to go forward from here to really take this to the next level from a machine learning AI perspective? And that's actually where best practice comes in. And I think, and, and we're just exploring, we're at the like baby stages yeah. of what we're exploring of what yeah. we can do. But I think those are some of the exciting things that stand in front of us is exactly what you're hitting on is how does this work not only to benefit a transaction, but a litigation? Now, I've got this specific set of facts in this type of case. What, honestly, do I need to be thinking of as I go forward? And that's, that's I think, what the power is of, like, thinking about it from, like, how, if you think about it, if you go back to what we originally wanted to set out to manage was documents, and if if we if we go back to saying that the core of what we're looking at is how do we take this interplay of these documents and and the and documents are driven by the information that's put in them. And so I think the the evolution of any workflow management um, or you know kind of uh, complex negotiation management, whether that's litigation or transactions mm. or projects, really is comes down to how do you draft the doc, how do you draft, negotiate, and um, the the documents, and based on the information that's being put in them. And so I think that that ties into what you're saying is that we have a huge opportunity to kind of take a look at how these things come together, and um, with that machine learning, we can say, where do they need to go now yeah. that these facts have changed? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, when you think about what the facts of, like you say, whether it's transaction or litigation, those facts dictate maybe the checklist, the tasks that need to be done, the know-how that needs to be delivered, the scope of the deal, the scoping of the deal, maybe even the pricing of the transaction uh -huh. as well. So, you know, it dictates everything. And um, again, if there is a situation where you had... Um, you build a scope based on those facts, but then those facts change. And that means something gets introduced to the scope of work that, um, that that's reflected in the engagement terms as well. Or if you find that someone's actually starting to work on a task that is outside the initial scope that is flagged right. intelligently to say, you might need to revisit your engagement terms because there is an area of work that needs to be done outside of that now. So right. again, it's just, I think it is that the key piece here is that intelligence layer and introducing that and almost making sure that not only the checklist, but every aspect of the of the deal reflects those facts and that it's constantly a living, breathing reflection of right. the current situation. Um, yeah. And, and, then, and then, you know, you've got a situation where people can work and they're given the information that they need. Um, due diligence, you know, is another example. Like a lot of work is done in due diligence. Mm -hmm. And then what you find is that. Um, there's recommendations that come out of due diligence in terms of steps that need to be taken either pre or post closing. Um, yes. But how, how often are they captured in terms of maybe a change of control, um, you know, uh, 
consent that needs to be obtained. Well, if that's flagged to DD, why yes. isn't that dynamically inserted, you know, the document created, inserted into the checklist? Yeah. Well, and that's, that's honestly why we actually created a data room inside of Doxly at the start. We weren't sure exactly, like, we're like, we think these things are connected. The documents that are in the data room drive what you do in the deal because you'll mm-hmm. see something and you'll be like, oh, okay, we're going to need an, a third party consent. Oh, you know, they didn't mention that they were renting three pieces of property up front. Now we need landlord waivers. Um, we now found out that instead of the one bank account, they actually have four. Um, we're going to need deposit account control. Like, you know, like it drives the documents as you go through the diligence and you figure out what's going on. And so I think, you know, that 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 ability to say, you know, this document means that I this this agreement needs to means that. And like we haven't quite, you know, we we built put them together so that you could go from one and immediately create a checklist item. But I think your point of being able to go from the data room and say, okay, now because of this, because I flagged this this document should appear on my checklist. Mm-hmm. Um, this this concept should appear on my checklist. That's something that's important. And I think one of the things that, you know, in, in the, the, you know, the AI providers, you know, that do all the diligence review, you know, I think they're they're moving more in this direction. But I think one of the things that's like, they, they're, they have this amazing ability to flag all of these things that you need to take a look at it. And, and to a certain extent, like when I've talked to partners that are using them, the exciting thing is where, you know, a partner would have only been able to review a hundred NDAs and then they have to hope that they didn't, that they didn't, that the hundred they chose included all the yeah. like deviations. Well, now with an AI tool, they can look at a thousand and the, it'll flag 115 ones that they should take a look at. Now yeah. they can feel more confident that they didn't miss something. So they, the scope of what people can review, I think that's a mistake in AI is like, oh, you're going to do less work because um, the AI tool is going to do so much. And it's like, no, the AI tool is going to flag all the things that you actually need to see, yeah. which sometimes may be more than the client had originally been willing to let you to look at. So it helps there. But the question then is, what's the output? I have a hundred of these contracts. I've looked at them. I flagged them for different reasons. Now what? And that's the big question is the now what? What do I do with that information? And I think your point is really spot on is that information needs to then translate into the negotiation side of it. And and it's sometimes it's, it translates into the negotiation side. Sometimes it actually the real place it needs to go is what happens after. Yeah. And I think that's a gap that that needs to be addressed is post merger integration. You've done this deal, you've bought something. Now what? Yeah. And like I, sometimes it's even getting the documents. Like a data room shuts down after a deal's done because you pay by month and by amount of data. Mm. So the the seller will own the data room and they pay for it. I think this goes into an interesting dynamic around these deal rooms. It's like, so seller pays for the data room. It's it's time and data driven in terms of how you pay for it. So the second a deal's done, the seller is of no mind now to continue paying for one more month. So if a deal closes on the end of the month, it's a, it's in their interest to shut the data room the day after the closing yeah, because yeah. they don't want to pay for another month. It's not, they've sold the company. It's not, well, now those documents, if they haven't been downloaded by the buyer, you know, the, or the buyer's attorneys like moved on to the next deal. Now, like, wait, now I've got to get access to all those contracts from the shutdown data room and I got to move them somewhere mm. and I got to now manage them somewhere else. And gosh, which were the contracts were the ones that were problematic? The AI tool told me, but now I got to find them in this mass of data. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, so yeah. that's a big thing. It is uh, the de- on due diligence. What really winds me up um, from a due diligence perspective is that you know I I do like some of the AI tools out there. I think you know they they obviously identify some provisions very well. But I think the way way things are moving is much more to exceptions only reporting from a due diligence perspective. Yeah. You're looking for the unusual things, and AI is very good at spotting kind of kind of the usual things in a way. It'll go and look for those change control clauses, those assignment clauses, anything you want to train it on. But it's quite hard to train AI on something that is unusual, strange. Um, and that tends to be what you want to know about in, in, in terms of DD process. So I actually think there's there is a there's more, it goes back to your output point. I think there's a different way that we could be doing DD um, and maybe using some of the AI tools, not just to look at clauses or contents of contracts, but actually to train the AI to, to spot those unusual uh, aspects of documents, tag them in the same way as you would tag through training, but link that back to your DD analysis. So if you right. do find something strange that is not just noted in a Word document due diligence report, oh, this document contains something unusual, in fact, you're tagging it, you're linking it back to the content you write. So in future deals, it can intelligently look at the data room and say, oh, actually, this is something that we came across in this previous deal and you flagged it as a red flag issue. Um, right. And then you might be able to get to a point where you're starting to generate and actually automate and create due diligence reports, really yes. high quality, good recommendation analysis DD reports off the back of an AI review. And I think if we can get to that point, then, then we're making good progress. And then as an extension to that, as you know, the DD report contains so many recommendations, both pre and post completion. And, you know, I used to put together 100 day plans to say this needs to be done. This needs to be done. That should be done after the deal. But how many times is that follow up followed up on uh, by the right. firm, by the firm? If that fed into something like an, an, an automated engagement letter um, that yeah. said, OK, here are 50 things we said that you should sort out post closing. We've actually scoped this. We've put some an engagement letter around this. We're ready to go and solve those issues then, you know, you're going to be increasing the follow-on work for the firm. But again, that just doesn't happen. I, I think that's honestly so spot on. It's like we, we think about what attorneys have, I think where we miss is where all the value is that we can add to um, our clients from a transaction. And a lot of times, and and this actually goes into, it, it's an interesting, it, it ties into why Atrium came to be with clients that got frustrated that when the deal ended, the the like legal work really kind of stopped. There was no follow on as to like what happens next. And like, mm-hmm. how do I, like maybe just a check-in to say, did you get that working capital adjustment done? Like, or some of those major milestones that yeah. were like wrapped into the contract. But, you know, here we, we have the ability to say, here are the 10, you know, the 15 contracts that you're taking on that have ongoing payment obligations. Here's the termination period and saying, and we can put together a report of here's your action plan of right after the deal. You need to take a look at and actually assess what you're going to do about these 15 contracts. And here's the time period in which this assessment needs to be mm-hmm. done. Otherwise, they're going to automatically renew. And yeah. you need to take a look at those. Or here's like this, like here, in, uh, you know, and to your point, like, you know, there's some, you know, risks that have come out of this deal and we can actually tell them. But, you know, it even goes even simpler. 
than that. I used to do this and we would do this for free and like, you know, but it's still a lot of work. The term sheet that, and this goes back to kind of one of your initial points, the term sheet as drafted is never the terms that we end on. No. That terms that were started, this is our guidepost. And yes, like that's ideally, that's what we're sticking to. This is the consideration. It's going to be X amount of cash, like X, like there's an earn out. And this is like, this is what we're going to do. There's no escrow, whatever. The ending deal is never exact to the term sheet diligence has like driven additional decisions mm -hmm. or considerations you know as we've gone through people decided that things were different things were more important to them when they got into it that wasn't wouldn't have been considered in the original LOI people need to know what the actual terms are when a deal ends what did we actually agree to because yeah. if you go back and look at the term sheet that is not representative of what the actual output so we used to in venture capital deals we would finish a deal and we would actually write up a new um, summary of ongoing terms like what were the rights and what did the what were the rights and preferences that the preferred ended up getting so that the company could make sure that they didn't make a decision that like violated a protective provision because the protective provisions were different from the term sheet to what they came up with. And yeah. so we'd almost give them like, this is what happened. This is the actual terms. Like, so especially for banking and finance, like you need to know what all those key things are, what the end covenants are that you've now like are now bound mm -hmm. like to. And so it's, it can be as simple as the output of what did we actually do, but then it can go, which would be nice to be able to say at the end of the deal, let's look at the documents. This is what the output is. This well, is what our deal summary is. Yeah, but well, then I think you go further to yours. Yeah. I, I think the other, the other piece that's interesting about that is it's the what's market analysis piece. Because right. again, you know, you've got so much data about negotiated documents and positions. That is valuable information when you're going into another negotiation. When someone yeah. says, well, we can't possibly accept that. That's crazy. And you say, well, actually, let me just show you this data here. And actually, we know that this has been accepted in the last 10 deals we've done in this sector or this space. This position yeah. was was acceptable. And in fact, actually, some previous deals we did with you, it was also acceptable. So, um, yes. uh, you know, again, it really feeds into that market. What's market analysis piece as well, which a, a lot of a lot of firms don't do. As you say, they don't actually record. Where do we get to with a lot of these points? Um, right. Well, and that's always what I thought about is like when you think about deals, it's not just about like, like it's all about it's like, OK, I'm uh, if I if I've done deals with this private equity or this bank, there are certain things I know that I, that have they've certain ways clauses have evolved mm. and so it's like i need to be able to say it's like it's like you've got like different playbooks that you need to be able to kind of access like how does this group typically negotiate this document on behalf of this client because it you know just because an attorney's given on this point before isn't necessarily relevant if it's totally different fact circumstances based on the clients they've represented and so you know it's like how do I like it, it? It brings it back to this concept. I think that's so important when you're negotiating on relevancy. Like, what is the relevance of a of a term or how a term is evolved, and and, and it's the relevance. And that I think that's what goes to what's market. Yeah. Because I think like what's market for an industry is not necessarily what's relevant to that specific deal because the, of this, like, this is the way this fund has typically done it, or this is the way this bank has typically done it. And this is the deviation points for them. So for what's market, like the question is, is who's market? Yeah. And I think that with these tools, like what you can do is find a better way to say what is truly market. 
Mm -hmm. And for this type of deal and that, and that's where that real intelligence comes from is saying, well, I could say what's market for series A financings, what in Silicon Valley, that is not the same as what's market for yeah. in what in a venture deal in Indiana. Mm -hmm. There's, and, and so like, and I've had people say that to me when I was the, um, when I was representing the VC, they'd be like, well, a series A pre-money evaluation is on average. And I'd be like, no, no, let's like, we're going to put a pause on that. If you, if you give me the number that's current in San Francisco, I am going to tell you that that has no relevance to us here in the Midwest. Like it has some bearing, but it's also here's, I can tell you the last 10 deals that I've managed for series A across different you know, types. And this is kind of, this is where the VC is going to come back at you on is they're going to say what's market in Indiana. And yeah. so yeah. you, you've got to like help people see kind of the relevancy, mm -hmm. you know, of that. I mean, I've done it even with like when people, when I've had employees that have been like, here is the salary of a person <laughs> at a thousand person company in, on, in California. And I was like, I, I, we are yeah. a 10 person company in Indiana, so we're going to have to like take this, we're yeah. going to take this conversation in a slightly different direction. Totally. Yeah. The other, the other challenge I think on these, you know, on the future transaction management platforms is how you work with that whole buy side, sell side divide. Yeah. You know, there, there are, it, it is transactional. Um, you know, we, each side's trying to get the best possible deal for themselves. Um, so how do you make sure that that kind of works seamlessly? If you're developing out these transaction management, can you get both sides playing in the same space, in the same platform? Because yes. on the one on the one side, you know, someone's trying to, you know, the buyer's trying to get the best possible deal and, and uncover all the risks it, it associated with what they're acquiring. The seller, not, not trying to hide, but they're very much saying, guys, it's over to you to find this out. I've given you the information. Can we ever get those working together, do you think? I think so. And I think it's, um, and it, it, it's interesting, you know, you have that, that, that kind of data room, I mean, and, and getting everyone to that virtual data room was a, was a challenge. And I remember talking and when I first started, people told me the partners were like, it's going to, your challenge is going to be the same as the virtual data rooms mm. to get people to be willing to put this information in a place where everyone can see the same things. And so it's like, you can't hide that like one document in a box that's off in the corner and hope they maybe don't go through that box. Like, yeah. nope, it's all there. You can do search terms. You, you know, they've all these things now. AI makes it even harder to hide something in a data room. Um, you know, it's like, nope. Um, it's that sort of concept of we can like data is all available and it's how do you search and classify and go through and do that diligence. And that's where the machine learning tools can really provide a value of making sure you don't miss something. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in the kind of negotiation side of it, like, I think there's, I think the actual hesitancy about being in the same place is more of, of, of a like, gosh, you know, there's that, that little dance that, you know, buy side and the sell side attorneys do when they do a deal, like, hey, we know that there's a conference call um, as for all the whole deal, like scheduled for 2pm on Thursday. So at 1pm on Thursday, I'm going to send all of the documents that I was drafting to the other side so that when we get on the call I can be like gosh you know all of these documents are with the buy side yeah. I'm sellers <laughs> counsel and so there's these like weird dances we do about where documents are and how they've flown and who has yeah. the pen and all this stuff and so there's that risk of just kind of exposing like where things truly are but mm. I think what I've seen from both sides is that 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 ability to actually move things forward and to make sure that like nothing's missed 
and so that we can move to closing like one a Clients are asking for transparency. They want to know what's going on. They don't want every. They don't want deals to be a black box. But mm. if you know, like one, they want to be engaged in it. They want to know what's happening. They care more about than just the purchase agreement. I was like, honestly, when I've talked to firms, they you know the ability to collect on these M and A deals at the levels and like you mentioned, as deals progress, you know things come up that weren't in the original scope, and you need to be if, if the client can see that a checklist, a transaction management room, and the checklist went from 20 items to 30 based on something that happened, they can actually see that there's 10 more documents that are being drafted yeah. and that like the scope of the, and the, and the price on the deal is going to change because we had to do so much more work. I mm. think that, that, that fear of like who has responsibility for a document is being replaced by the fact that the client wants to know what's going on. And, and I remember the pain of, if a, if a client thinks that the only document we have to draft is a purchase agreement, when the purchase agreement is done, they expect the deal to close. And if you can show them that there's 80 other documents that need to come together to underlay this transaction, mm -hmm. then they see that, okay, all of these things need to come together. What role do they need to play to help get them done? It, it creates better alignment both during the deal and then it after does. when you need to build. It does. I, I actually really, at that point you've just made it um, on the, uh, the the time at which the lawyers actually circulate documents is really interesting because doing that th within the platform is going to enable a lot of metrics to be captured about that. Mm -hmm. So, and, and then you might get to a situation actually where you agree up front some, maybe some SLAs actually around the deal to say, no one wants to be in a position where they're receiving documents prior to a call, you know, maybe an hour prior to a call. That's that's not what anyone should be doing. And so we will commit to making sure we circulate on both sides documents to the other side prior to any you know, 24 hours prior to any call. And the platform can ascertain whether that's happening. It can look at saying, yeah. you know, are, are, are both sides meeting their SLAs on this deal? Are we acting in the right way? rather than just dumping documents on the other side and giving them no time to, you know, to review them. Because all that does is just rack up costs, means wasted calls. Yes. And so it's not in anyone's interest. Yeah. And then that's the way, like everyone can see, okay, this is the, this is the set of documents we're working with. This is when we got them. We're, you know, like we actually always had a date on ours. What's like, when was the last change? Mm. And that's like, because it's important to know, like if you're having a call and the documents changed hands like an hour ago, like, no, not the, no one can brief their client in that amount of time. So the call probably should just be rescheduled until there's a point in time where people can actually, because it does, it goes down to what's like a wasted call. And like, you know, going through, and I remember having tons of calls around, like, what does the checklist look like at this given moment? And like, those are wasted calls. We should be able to go in and say, these are the, like, kind of the top items. And that's, I think that's actually one of the things where like transaction management and, and, and any kind of work management um, needs to go generally at the yeah. end of the day we need to be um like thinking about things from the perspective of like what needs to happen in order to close this deal out like what are the open items what are the tasks that need to be completed like what what needs to come together to mm. to close out this process and the process can be a deal it can be like a, a specific project and and i think that's one of the key directions that we're going in we've got intelligence that we can extract from all these documents that can help drive how the negotiation happens we've got checklists that can give us a window into where we are in the process but you know and we need to combine those two pieces together to say how are we actually progressing and, and how are things changing it's so that at the end of the day documents aren't missing and then we aren't thinking at the last minute of oh my god 
now that we're at a stock deal, we need this last piece of information. Mm-hmm. We need to actually transfer these certificates in a specific way. And, yeah. and so like you don't want to be in that position and the intelligence can help drive us to a better negotiation process. But um, we also need to take a step back and say, okay, the checklist tells us the things that need to be done. It doesn't tell us the specific things that need to happen in order to move a single item forward. And we've always like looked at it from that perspective of how do we drive action around specific documents within the team? Because as you mentioned at the start, like transactions aren't done by just the M&A team. The tax, environment, mm-hmm. um, real estate, litigation are all coming together to kind of weigh in on these things. And so I think that, you know, we always looked at like, how do you make discrete tasks for different items? But then it's like, okay, how do I pull back and say, this type of deal, we've got these things that need to be done, yeah. but where are we and what items still need to be completed in order to close things out? And, and tasks are driven by different, you know, tasks are driven by meetings, they're driven by email, they're driven by documents. And yeah. how do I turn those things into real actionable information? Exactly. I mean, task management for lawyers is is something that's never been sussed out. It's never, I don't right. think anyone's got it right. It's, it's either because it's over-engineered and you're being really descriptive and prescriptive saying you must do this these are the steps you need to take and a lot of them are actually irrelevant for the transaction or they're too granular or it's too fluid and and it just gets kind of forgotten and, and falls to the wayside during the transaction and and because people haven't got the time to keep managing it so finding that happy medium as you say that is almost dynamically creating the the relevant tasks in a manageable way from the activities of the deal is the way forward um, yeah. Listen, Haley. Um, I'm just conscious we've been. This is a, this has been a fascinating <laughs> talk, and we've we've uh, as I suspected, we've really got into the weeds and gone deep on yeah. on transaction management, which I think is important because I think it is such a great area to discuss, and it, a lot's happening in this space. So, and I know it's morning over there for you, and it's you know <laughs> a family time and things. So I don't want to take up any more time. I, I just want to say. A massive thank you for taking part in the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed uh Oh, enjoyed this the is discussion. a fascinating discussion. I've, I've been so excited about it because just even in our earlier discussions, like this is, it's so interesting yeah. the direction things can go and, and really diving into it is important. Yeah, no, it really is. So no, thank you once again. And uh, for everyone else listening, uh, the next episode of the Legal Tech, po- uh, Legal Tech Arcade podcast will be out in a couple of weeks. But thanks again, Hayley. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode of the Legal Tech Arcade podcast. If you enjoyed the show, then please go ahead and subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you next time.